This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote video interviews with many authors. And in the coming weeks, we'll be providing you with the audio of these interviews. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content you've come to expect. Today, our guest is renowned restaurant critic and former editor of Gourmet Magazine, Ruth Reichel. We spoke with her via Zoom in May of 2020 about her latest memoir, Save Me the Plums, published by Random House. Her previous memoirs have been translated into 18 different languages and published all around the world. Considering her impact on food media, it's no wonder so many people want to know more about her experiences. She's been blazing new trails throughout her career, from writing in the New York Times to her tenure as editor for Gourmet Magazine. So we put cupcakes on the cover and hundreds of people start writing in. I mean, one woman literally wrote in and said, that cover was so disgusting, I had to rip it off. I couldn't look at it anymore. None of us had understood the statement that we were making, but essentially, Gourmet had belonged to a very small group of people who were interested in, you know, fine dining and fancy French food. So what we had been saying with putting this cupcake on was we're about real food. And this magazine does not belong to a small group of elite people anymore. We'll hear how Gourmet Magazine continued to change under her leadership, learn a little about her current documentary project exploring COVID-19's impact on the food industry, and get her insights into the future of food media. Acclaimed food writer and restaurant critic Ruth Reichel joins us on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, managing editor for Sauce Magazine, Heather Hughes-Huff. I just finished your book last week. I was so pleased to get a copy from Left Bank Books in St. Louis. Um, And reading it as a food magazine editor, it felt like reading Brideshead Revisited or something. It was like... (laughs) grandeur of days gone by, <laughs> like this is how people used to live. <laughs> um, obviously, it's it's a very different landscape right now. And something that kept coming to mind was what must it be like to be on this book tour, talking about a book that's covering the closure of a really wonderful magazine, sort of in the midst of a recession, while right now, most restaurants in the country are closed media in general is in a really precarious position and we're sort of all holding our breath for another recession. What's it been like for you? Well, you know, I, I'm in the middle of working on a documentary about how this pandemic is affecting the food landscape. So I spend all my days talking to Zooming with (laughs) farmers and chefs and fishermen and ranchers and Um, food processors and wholesalers. I mean, really, we're casting a very wide net on this. And it feels to me like this moment is a real pivot point for food. Mm -hmm. And so there's something very familiar about it because when 
I was offered the job uh, of becoming the editor in chief of Gourmet. Um, I, I, I had a job I liked a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't think that I was qualified to take over the Bible of the food business. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I thought it was really important that at that particular time, it was 1999, and that food magazines change, that Epicurean magazines stop being all nice and about, you know, reservations and recipes. And, you know, start dealing with the realities of what was going on in the American food landscape and that, that people were waking up to food in a way that they hadn't before. So it was like, I didn't feel like I was qualified to do it. On the other hand, I felt like it was this opportunity to actually change what an Epicurean magazine might be. And so I feel like I'm in a very much similar place right now. I mean, what do I know about making a documentary? Nothing. (laughs) Um, On the other hand, I think it's really important that we're at this real pivot point and the food in America could either, we could come out of this where everyone suddenly like understands how important food is and starts cooking again and realizes that their local farmers are a very important part of their community, that their restaurants really matter, that, you know, half the people they know work in in restaurants, go to restaurants. Um, And that we collectively decide that we're gonna fix this broken food system and make it more sustainable. Um, Or it could be that, you know, half the restaurants in America close, half the farmers go out of business, half the fishermen have to, you know, go bankrupt and sell their boats. And um, it's the triumph of industrial food for the foreseeable future. So it feels very, very familiar to me. I mean, I feel like it's, it's, you know, it's, like 20 years later, but it's, it's another real turning point. So um, everyone is, or at least in my world, everyone's talking about how um, restaurants and farms may be affected permanently in the way they do business in the structure of how restaurants are run, especially service um, and sort of wondering how that's going to look and coming up with their own ideas. But how do you think that this, all of these changes are going to affect food media in the way that um, we operate? Do you have any ideas or have you been thinking about that as well? well I'm thinking about that as well because, um, you know, it seems to me that, um, you know, we've always had this notion of being impartial. And it seems to me that this is not a moment to be impartial. I mean, this is a real moment for the food media to advocate for sustainability and for um, you know justice for farm workers, and um, I feel like it's a moment to really understand and seize our place. You know, it's really interesting watching restaurant critics try to figure out how do you be a restaurant right when there are no restaurants. It's interesting to watch how, you know, some parts of the food media are doing an incredible job and some parts seem baffled, you know, I mean, what, what do I do now? Right. And to me, it seems very clear that we all 
for the first time, have an extremely clear purpose in life. We all need to eat and the food system as we've seen it, as we've let it happen, um, is terribly, terribly broken. And to me, it, it's an amazing moment for food media. In your book, there's this moment where you're at a party and you're sort of back in the family of uh, the food industry. You talk about moving from being a critic where you couldn't get to know chefs to coming into gourmet and being able to reconnect and form relationships with people in the industry a little bit more. And I, this is a conversation we have in our office all the time. Food media is at a strange in-between place where we're journalists who are covering an industry, so we're sort of looking in from the outside, but it's not like if you're covering politics, the person that you're covering is going to give you your dessert on your anniversary. You know, it's like this intimate place where you really get to know people in a different way in a more social environment. I guess my question is like, how do you see food media's relationship to the industry? It sounds like you see it more as an advocate, as someone who is uh, one part of it rather than sort of outside looking in. I've been writing about food for 50 years. When I started, there were the tiniest handful of us who were interested in food. I mean, it was, you know, restaurants were seen as uh, blue collar work. Um, chefs weren't interesting. Um, you know, I, I loved food. It never crossed my mind that it could actually be a career for me. I mean, it just, it just didn't, you know, it didn't, wasn't on my radar. And I fell into it in, I mean, totally by accident, you know, it's like, um, couldn't get a job I liked, wrote a cookbook, then everybody thought I was, a, you know, I was a food writer. Um, but in those early years, um, we were kind of all in it together, you know, chefs, food writers. I mean, you know, when I went to the LA Times, I became first the restaurant critic, and then I became the restaurant critic and the food editor. The idea that you could do that today is ridiculous. I mean, you couldn't. But in the 80s, you could, um, because we, it wasn't adversarial. And in fact, the only thing that's really, I mean, there are a couple things that are adversarial. And I guess, you know, restaurant criticism has become adversarial, but I think it's a real issue about what should restaurant critics be doing today anyway. You know, the other thing is, uh, I mean, most of the people who write about food, you know, believe in sustainability and so forth. And so there's a real muckraking aspect of it, you know, where the adversarial part of it is, you know, we have this food system that's made, you know, six out of 10 Americans have chronic illness. And a lot of that comes directly from the way we um, produce and um, ingest our food. I think if ever there was a moment for people to sort of be on the same page, it's now. And, you know, I mean, look, look at what you're doing. I mean, you're the only standalone monthly city food publication in the country. I mean, it's amazing. Is that true? Yeah. Well, great. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, you're doing something that everybody said, you know, oh, you can't do that. You can't make a living doing, you know, and especially, you know, you're not even in New York. I mean, <laughs> you're in St. Louis. Um, and yet you've managed to make that happen. And, um, 
you know, it's a wonderful kind of thinking. It's a kind of, you know, yes, 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 we can do this. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like, you know, in the food space, we need to have more of that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I, we're supposed to be talking about my book and I'm so, my head is so much in this, this documentary that I'm doing. Yeah. It's, it's, um, well, no, I was, I, that's all I've been thinking is preparing for this is like, how can you be focused on this with everything that's going on? I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're uh, working on something directly related to what's going on. That's great. Oh, yeah, no, I'm totally not focused. On <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll bring us back to the book a little bit then. Um, because that is, uh, like I said, it's like reading I don't know, it's it's a dream to think of all of the resources you had at Condé Nast at the time and the way things operated. Um, and being in a food magazine, I'm just, the thing that I was focused on in reading this was food media and how it worked then and the change is just how vastly different it is now. Um, but your time at Gourmet was at such an interesting point Um, You talk about this transition in fine dining um, from top-down influences to like bottom-up street food becoming such a huge national trend and and really high-level food people, chefs, everybody being really interested in that. And the same thing was going on in food media. Not only was the internet becoming a huge force, but culturally there was this shift of, I, I just can't get over this moment where people are furious that there are cupcakes on the cover of a magazine. It's insane to think about people responding as if you're making some huge political statement because you, you're showing cupcakes. Um, and I, it just, again, makes me think about the role of food media and where you were at that time. So what was, what was your thinking when people are telling you just like outrageous things? What? You know, I mean, it was very odd taking over Gourmet because Gourmet was, um, I mean, it was the Bible and, and it was, it was very staid. And um, the moment with the cupcakes was such an aha moment for me because, I mean, you know, so we put cupcakes on the cover and hundreds of people start writing in. I mean, one woman literally wrote in and said, that cover was so disgusting, I had to rip it off. I couldn't look at it anymore. And I was totally puzzled by it. And then I realized that they were right. I mean, none of us had understood the statement that we were making, but essentially, Gourmet had belonged to a very small group of um, gourmets, I mean, people who used the word gourmet, you know, I am a gourmet, Mm -hmm. Um, something that nobody of my generation would have said very comfortably, but they felt that they owned the magazine and they were people who were interested in, you know, fine dining and fancy French food. And, you know, they were interested in wine and definitely not beer. And Um, they weren't interested in street food. And when they traveled, they wanted to take fancy vacation. I mean, one of, one of, for me, one of the big moments was, I mean, they had an article about Thailand and the recipes were all from this resort. And it was like the candies they put on the, 
uh, pillows of the guests at night. And they thought, you know, who goes to Thailand to eat you know, coconut candies on pillow at night? It, it's, and so what we had been saying with putting this cupcake on was um, we're about real food. We're about, you know, it, it isn't all souffles. Um, and it was a subliminal message, but people got it. And it took us a while to understand that, you know, we really were sending that message saying, this magazine does not belong to a small group of elite people anymore. This magazine is for a much broader group of people. And we hope to interest other people. We hope to interest people who do not necessarily share your tastes. And yes, we will still have lots of articles that you love. And we will still have wonderful recipes and we will still have lots of complicated recipes, but we're also going to have recipes that you can come home and, you know, if you're a working woman, uh, get dinner on the table um, in 20 minutes for your family. And both are legitimate. And we're going to have articles about um, street food and, um, you know, these new young chefs who are, bringing all of these other accents into the food. And um, the audience who objected to the cupcake, um, they weren't wrong. I mean, you know, and somebody said, you know, what are you gonna do next? Put hot dogs on the cover? And, you know, and we did put hot dogs on the cover. <laughs> I mean, it took us another five years, I think, but we did. But they were right to be worried. <laughs> they were right to be worried. I mean, I we wanted a much wider audience. And I think you were sort of at the crux of this transition from food, uh, especially fine dining, sort of gourmet food, being the interest of an elite who could afford to go to restaurants and invest a lot of money in it as a sort of hobby to, um, especially in, with the internet, this interest in, cooking and food and dining being a, a much more of the people kind of a thing. It's not the people who have time or a chef to make them something this nice. It's people getting interested in where their food comes from and uh, food, not just being like open a can of soup and call it a day. Um, yeah. I mean, the, for me, the real turning point moment when I understood that the, I didn't just hope that the audience had changed, but the audience in fact had changed was, you know, when David Foster Wallace wrote, consider the lobster for us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one, I was thrilled that he agreed to write for us. I mean, when the editor who got him to write for us said, you know, I'm going to go after David Foster Wallace, my first thought was, you know, he's not going to write for us. And then he did write for us. And um, when the piece came in, it was brilliant um, and really problematic for me because um, who would ever have imagined sending a writer to the Maine Lobster Festival that he would come back with a bioethics piece about the morality of eating living creatures? Right. And, you know, what do lobsters feel going into the pot? And he even you know, says, I mean, I felt like as I was reading this piece the first time in manuscript and I get about three pages in and he says, I doubt very much whether the readers of Gourmet Magazine want to read about these subjects 
in their culinary monthly. And I thought, boy, you're sure right about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, and I was terrified because I thought, you know, this is the most brilliant piece of writing. I can't not publish it. On the other hand, half the readers are going to cancel their subscriptions and I'm going to get fired. I'm going to lose my job. I was really frightened. And, um, you know, as I say in the book, I, I, the night it was published, I was so nervous. I, I didn't know what to do. And I took my then, I guess Nick was 14 or 15. I took him out to dinner and, um, you know, he looked at me and said, mom, you're underestimating your readers. I think they're going to like it. I think, you know, anybody who cooks wants to think about those things. He was right. (laughs) You know, I mean, two people canceled their subscriptions and hundreds wrote in and said, we really respect a magazine that um, offers this kind of thought provoking writing to its readers. And I thought, okay, now we can do anything. And so you know, we continued to, I mean, the kitchen always very important at Cormet. I mean, we tested those recipes to literal absurdity. But um, after that, you know, if, if someone came to us with a story that seemed edgy, I was never afraid of it again. Um, you know, You'd so already allowed someone to question, like, the very project of Gourmet Magazine within <laughs> Um, well, that, uh, it feels like such a golden era to hear about how that piece came to be after reading it in, um, so many different places over the years. Uh, but now it feels like in so many ways, people don't tell or care about the difference between a Yelp review and a food magazine willing to, to print that kind of a story. Um, so what do you see the full the role of food media now um, and what sets apart a good um, project, good magazine, a good perspective from all the noise that's online? Well, you know, I think it's really interesting that there is so much more really great food journalism right now um, than there was then. I mean, there just weren't a lot of outlets and it, it was like, you know, I mean, I was really lucky. I mean, I went to where, and this is why I wanted to write the book, because I, I felt like that time, it was a golden time. It was never coming again. But, you know, I was lucky enough to work for a publisher who said, I want you to make the best possible food magazine, and I'll give you all the resources to do it. You know, here's lots of money, hire the best writers, get great photographers and artists, and um and that that time is gone for publishing everywhere. Right. But um, in those days, there really weren't very many outlets for, you know, for those kinds of stories. I mean, even David Foster Wallace was you know, like, you know, where else would I publish this? Because yeah. um, people didn't publish much about food. I mean... In 2007, I gave a speech to the newspaper editorial writers of America, begging them to cover food. And, you know, I started telling them all the stuff we now know about, you know, the the dead zones from fertilizer runoff and, you know, the devastation of the oceans and um, the fact that we gobbled up all the big wild fish and, 
you know, on and on and on. And they were shocked. I mean, they didn't know any of those things. Well, you couldn't give that speech five years later, right? Because no. <laughs> everybody now covers food. And um, so now, you know, if you want to write great articles about food and if you, want, if you want to write recipe articles, there are plenty of places to do it. If you want to write really thoughtful recipe articles, you can publish them in newspapers now, which you couldn't. I mean, it would have been when... I started at Gourmet. If you wanted to write something with a long preamble about, you know, you got this from your mother's home village in India, they would say, just you know, give us the recipe. Get to the point, yeah. Get to the point. And if you want to, you know, there, there are literally hundreds of outlets for writing about food, you know, from, you know, small, um, wonderful magazines like Bitter Southerner um, to... Uh, the New Yorker, which never, I mean, you know, they maybe publish two food related articles a year. And now it's constantly in the mix. And, you know, the Atlantic, I mean, there, there's just, there's so many places to publish it. So um, maybe there's not a need for a magazine like Gourmet anymore. That's true. It's easy to lament, especially working at a small private publication, all of, all of the, the perks of Condé Nast and the recipe testing you were able to do and all of that. Um, but it's true. I don't think anybody hesitates to see the connection between food and everything that's important to read about. I mean, it's agriculture, it's culture, it's history. Um, there's, there's no uh, small box for food media now in the ways that there used to be. Food has become part of popular culture. And, you know, movies don't really need their, their own magazine. Books don't need their own magazine. And in the same way, food doesn't either anymore. Yeah. And frankly, most of the places that, that are doing just straight food stuff are that have real resources, you know, I mean, like the big food magazines, most are pretty disappointing. Ruth Reichel on the evolution of food media. In just a bit, she'll share her feelings about cooking and how it's helped her through the quarantine. There's nothing I don't like doing in the kitchen. I like, you know, I even like doing dishes. And, you know, I, I love the smells and the sounds. And I wrote a book about how my kitchen year, 136 recipes had saved my life. And in this moment, Cooking is saving my life again. We'll hear more about her relationship with food, her feelings about influencers, and a few more stories from her latest book as we continue with Ruth Reichel on Talking with Authors from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. Coming back to the book a little bit, there are a couple parts uh, that really stuck out to me um, that you sort of just give a passing reference to. And the, the focus is on gourmet and your story there. So I think it makes sense not to dive into huge issues. But there are a few places where you talk about balancing your family life 
there is a moment where you mention Mario Batali and it's clear like you can't move on without talking about Me Too. Um, so you were working and this book is focused on a time that um, was before Me Too or Lean In were movements and people operated in the world without constantly referencing those ideas, but um, how, what is it like reflecting back on your time at Gourmet for this book um, with those lenses in mind a little bit? You could see it come through in just those, those moments, but I was wondering if you could give us a little more. Well, um, you, you're bringing up two, I think, separate things. And Sorry, they're big ideas. One is, one is the work-life balance, specifically for women. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was because I felt like um, it was something I grappled with a lot and that I really wanted to write about that. And not just for me, but also for, you know, all of the editors that I worked with. Whenever a young editor would come to me and say, I'm pregnant. And I would say, you know, are you coming back after maternity leave? And they would always say yes. And um, I would say, okay, now you're going to understand guilt in a way you've never understood it before, because it is absolutely impossible to be a working mother and not feel no matter what you're doing, that you're in the wrong place. Um, and, you know, that's another thing that this COVID moment may change is the balance between men and women in taking care of their kids. Um, I mean, I think men are having to step up. I mean, they're, everybody's sort of home. And even men who were really helpful, I mean, it, it was almost always, you know, if a kid got sick at school, they called the mom. And my daughter-in-law is um, a preschool teacher, and she said they still call the mom. <laughs> it's school policy. Just start there. That has been... Uh, a real problem for women. And I felt like I wanted people to, um, I wanted to be honest about my own struggle with it. I don't think I always came out on the right side. I mean, if I had it to do over again, um, I would be one of those women who said to my staff, I leave at six o'clock every night. I go home to my family at six o'clock. I wasn't, you know, I mean, yeah. um, at seven o'clock, my family would start calling and saying, when are you coming home to make dinner? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, you forget that um, the time you have with your children is really a very short amount of time in a lifetime. I felt like, you know, I, I should say, I really regret that um, all that time that I didn't spend with Nick, um, not coming back. Do you think that uh, the workplace is more understanding now of that need or do you think, it's, not. At I all? think it's even I think it's even less. I mean, I think now that we all, you know, carry a little computer around with us, we're on call all the time. Yeah. I don't think it is. And I think, you know, it's something that we as a nation really have to deal with. I mean, um, we have like some of the worst parental leave policies in the world. And um, it's not good for society. Um, and so, I mean, that, so that for me was a big part of the book. And I have to say my editor pushed me to put, you know, more of it. And I mean, after I had turned it in and, and 
she really wanted me to write a chapter about specifically about Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did. <laughs> uh, and the other issue is the Me Too issue. And um, it, it gets back a little bit to you know what we were talking about earlier um, because I feel badly that I didn't try harder to advocate more for women and people of color in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. We looked, it wasn't like we didn't look, we tried. I mean, we you know, tried to cover women, but um, we should have tried harder and we should have pushed that envelope. We all knew about bad behavior in the kitchen. I mean, you know, there were plenty of books about it. You can, you know, you can read them, you know. Um, you know, Tony Bourdain was very upfront about what, his behavior was in the kitchen and, you know, Mario Batali didn't write a book about that, but his partner did. Um, yeah. And um, I mean, I didn't know the worst of it, but I, I sort of, we all knew that sort of macho attitude that took place in kitchens and we should have done more about it. I should have, I personally should have done more about it. Do you, um, what would that have looked like? Just, specific stories or yeah i mean what it would have looked like would have been for instance seeking out women who maybe didn't weren't head chefs but were sous chefs and doing stories about them pushing them forward you know telling their stories um tried harder finding you know chefs who were people of color and um writing about them even if they weren't famous yet helping make them famous yeah it is it's a hard uh you're sort of a gatekeeper in a way that you don't always realize i think food media reflects the industry that it's covering so you're going to see a lot of white men in power um and it's it's interesting to think about the ways that as as a food writer or editor um you can you can change the narrative um, that's happening, uh, even if you can't change what's happening in the kitchens or anything like yes. that. See, I mean, I, I didn't think about my role. I mean, I thought, for instance, about trying to change the narrative for farm workers. We thought about that and, and did stories. That, but I didn't, we all accepted the culture of the kitchen, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, we shouldn't know. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, women of my generation just, you know, we accepted casual misogyny. It just seemed like the way of the world. Yeah. Sort of a point of pride to, to brush it off even. Right. And, you know, and I did endless stories. I mean, I, I, my first story about women in in the kitchen was in 1980 uh, (laughs) for California magazine. And the stories these women told were, Incredible. Well, I mean, Mary Sue Milliken, um, you know, graduates from chef school. She was living in Chicago. She goes to Le Perroquet, which was the best restaurant in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And she's beautiful. I mean, even now, at 60, she's beautiful. But, you know, at 22, she was amazing. And she goes in and she asks the owner for a job and he offers her a job as a hatchet girl. And she goes, she went in every day for a year 
saying, I want a job in the kitchen. And every day he offered her a job as a hat check girl. And then one day they were short someone in the kitchen. And he said, okay, you know, go into the kitchen. And, you know, they made her like, you know, kill 50 lobsters with her bare hands. I mean, they, they, and, you know, another woman had this, the chef go up on the roof and pour ice water down on her. You know, I mean, I mean, people put up with incredible things, but, you know, Mary Sue ended up running that kitchen. Mm-hmm. It's been a year she was running the kitchen. And, and I mean, women, women put up with that and they triumphed. And, um, you know, we thought that was great. Well, it wasn't great. I mean, they shouldn't mm-hmm. have had to put up with that. <laughs> right. That is, it's, a, it's an interesting, especially looking back now um, where, you think like how strong must you have been? And it's a new way of thinking about it. Like even when Me Too started happening and people were posting all their stories online, I I had that thought of like, of course this is what men do. Like it's not, this isn't the surprise. The surprise is that people care about it now. Um, and that they're like, of course this is the way kitchens are. Um, or what women have had to put up with. But I, I do hope that, um, especially in shutting down all of restaurant kitchens and coming back, maybe it'll be a good time to um, change the culture even more, which I know it, it has been changing, but um, it is- There's, there's still a lot to change, I mean. Yeah. Um, well, and it's not just, um, Anyway, this is a little peripheral, so bring it back to the book a little bit. One of my favorite moments in the book is you quoting your uh, former art director, Diana LaGuardia, calling advertisers cockroaches <laughs> um, and sort of talking about the way that they mimic editorial content and how much she hates that. Um, how do you think about the way advertising has evolved. You also talk a lot about um, Brand Ruth and sort of becoming this figurehead for the magazine. Um, And reading that, I was thinking about the way that celebrity marketing has sort of flipped from that time where celebrities would be used, or marketers would use celebrities as advertising to represent their brands. And now it's sort of, um, marketing that creates celebrities. Every event that I go to, a media event for Sauce Magazine, it's mostly influencers who... I hate that her. word. I hate that word. <laughs> um, so what do, you, what do you think about this influencer movement um, and food media? I mean, you know, the whole influencer movement is, is really, I mean, it's about the Yelps. I mean, it's about clicks and I, you know, Yes, we are a celebrity-influenced society, but I don't think it's good for us. Um, I don't think it's good in any way, frankly. And it's like one of the reasons, like, you know, what for me, one of my favorite moments in the book is um, when I was shooting the TV show Adventures with Ruth, and I went to all these incredible places with celebrities, and I got on a plane with Fran McDormand, and... You know, Fran gets up to go to the bathroom and a woman across the aisle leans over and says, is that? And I said, yeah. And Fran comes back and the woman comes up and she sort of stands in front of her and she sticks a a piece of paper 
in, in her nose and hands her a pen and says, you know, I want an autograph. And Fran looks at her for a moment and I thought she was going to say no. Mm-hmm. And then she just, you know, looked up at this woman and she said, you know, I'm just an actor. I'm not all that interesting. In fact, you're probably much more interesting than I am. And you should pay more attention to yourself. You'll be happier that way. (laughs) And I thought, you know, that's right. I mean, everybody in America needs to hear that. You know, pay more attention to yourself and less to these people who you've imbued with magical powers. You have no idea who they really are. And what does it matter what they think? Um, What does it matter to you? And you know, form your own ideas. And that was kind of, for me, the end of Brand Roof. It was like they'd been trotting me out to try and make me an influencer. And it was like, you know what, this is not a good fit for me. I don't wanna be a brand. I just wanna be myself. And um, they're gonna have to go sell the magazine um, some other way, but it's not gonna be by pretending that I'm more interesting than I am. I really liked that um, moment where you went to that dinner, uh, like sponsored dinner or whatever, and had that realization that you hadn't asked any questions. I was like, that was very personal. I, I liked you including that. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was humiliating, actually, because I behaved so badly. But um, yeah, it was somebody who bought dinner with me at a charity event mm-hmm. in a uh, very rich person. And, um, and, you know, at a certain point he turned, looked at me and said, you know, I'm much more interesting than you are. And you haven't asked me a single question. And it was another one of those moments like, oh my God, who have I become? You know, um, what do I mean by not asking this, you know, clearly interesting man questions? Well, I think that that can transition us to what are you up to now? Uh, who have you become? Uh, you know, I'm just a person. Um, I, you know, I'm someone who has always loved to cook. And, you know, at the end of Gourmet, when the magazine closed, um, I came home and started cooking again and really pretty much found myself again in the kitchen. Um, the kitchen is my... Um, it's my most comfortable place. Um, you know, I just, I, there's nothing I don't like doing in the kitchen. I like, you know, I even like doing dishes. I like, you know, going into a messy kitchen and, you know, turning um, order out of chaos. Um, and, you know, I, I love the smells and the sounds. And so I wrote a book about how my kitchen year, 136 recipes that saved my life. And, in this moment, cooking is saving my life again. And I'm really fortunate because I live in upstate New York. I'm totally surrounded by farmers. Mm-hmm. And um, all the farmers have you know, set up little farm stores in their barns and I can get you know, meat and eggs and, um, and, and they, they've sort of joined together in this wonderful way. So you know, one of my favorite farmers who, who raises meat and uh, dairy things, you know, has a neighboring farm bringing vegetables over to his place. And actually this last weekend had 
um, some friends from Cape Cod drive in with clams and oysters. That's lucky. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate in that I'm there surrounded by good food and doing a lot of cooking. I was really worried because I ran out of flour and there was no flour anywhere. You couldn't get it. You couldn't even order it. And um, a friend of mine who um, has a noodle factory showed up with a hundred pounds of flour for me. A hundred pounds. I think you're a very lucky quarantiner. That's amazing. Well, I mean, what do you do with all, I mean, I had to sort of give a lot of it away. Yeah, too much. He said, you know, a hundred pounds is a, that's a lot of flour. Even if I break bread every day, you know, it's just me and Michael here. Um, there's only so much bread we can eat. That's fantastic. Something else that struck me while reading the book was this moment where you're um, eating a three-star dinner in Paris and you say, I finally don't need to take any notes um, because you're not a critic anymore. And I just had this thought, like, you absolutely did take notes. You described that meal so <laughs> minutely. Uh, are you uh, an avid note taker? Do you just write down everything that you eat? Or how do you keep track so detailed um, of, of all the foods and, that you I, write? I did not take notes on that, really? on that meal. Um, but um, I did have the menu. OK, that and, helps. Um, <laughs> I remember, you know, I mean, I, I, and it, I kind of dreamed myself back into that meal, just reading the menu. Uh, and, and the truth is, I mean, I'm talking about a meal at Pierre Gagnier, and he is um, one of the chefs I admire most. I mean, his food is constantly mind-blowing. I mean, he, he walks a tightrope, and I don't think he ever cooks the same thing twice. And so I vividly remembered that so you're food. not going to forget that meal. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, how do you, what, what is your writing life like? I know it must have been so different in all of these different stages as a critic and then at Gourmet and then now when you're focused on your books, um, what's it been like? Well, you know, I mean, I wrote most of my books while I had a full-time job. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, in those days, I would get up every morning at five o'clock and write for two hours before it was time to make breakfast for my family. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned that I really love that almost dream state. So, I mean, I would get up and you know, go to my, I had a little tiny room in the back of the apartment where, um, you know, I would sit there kind of in the dark and sort of write, barely awake. And... Um, for the first draft and then, you know, rewrite like crazy. Um, here, I actually have a little cabin that's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a 30 second walk from the house, but it's not in the house and it's very small and I don't have internet out there. And um, I, I'm surrounded by, you know, art that I love and, you know, photographs I love. I mean, it's a very cozy little cabin in the, in the middle of the woods. And so I can sit there and watch. I look down at a pond and um, hawks circle up above and they're, uh, we're very rural. So, you know, I watch deer and bears and wild turkeys. Um, and um, until I started working on this documentary, I basically went out there and 
worked all day. I mean, I'd make breakfast for Michael, um, go out and work, come back in, make lunch, go out and work, come back in and, you know, have a glass of wine and start making dinner. It's odd because in some ways it's easier to write when you know you only have two hours and then, you know, your, your child is going to wake up and say, you know, where's my breakfast? Um, so you use that time really well. When you know you have all day, um, it's easy to just sort of, the days can vanish. That's trailblazing food writer and acclaimed restaurant critic Ruth Reichel as we spoke to her in May of 2020 about her latest book, Save Me the Plums, from publisher Random House. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The producer of the video version of this program was Julie Winkle. Our host was Heather Hughes-Huff. The video editor was Peter Foggy. Production support by Christina Chastain. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking with Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing and this episode's podcast producer is Paul Langdon. And I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam. Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library, Left Bank Books, and Sauce Magazine. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Houle, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.